0: This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com.
1: Good evening, everyone. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Tempe, and I just want to welcome you to First Wednesday. First Wednesdays are our monthly gatherings where we reflect on important cultural issues, Through the lens of the gospel story, that's the viewpoint, the vantage point that we're looking at things from. Um, In the past, we've done things like art and sports and politics and race and food and a whole number of things. Tonight, we're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about family as a part of culture, but also the soil from which culture grows. Um, To introduce that, I've brought you a piece of corn. If 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 I've if you know anything about me, probably the first thing you know is that I love to grow stuff in the garden, and this piece of corn was actually grown here on this campus, um, on our on our in our community garden out in the corner there. You can take a look at it. Now this piece of corn is an heirloom corn from the tribes that were grown that, that lived here long before we were around. It's a sweet corn, it's delicious like, who would want this if I were to give it to you right now? All right. I'm not going to give it to you. (laughs) But, but, let me ask you this. If I were to give you a bucket of the soil that this corn was grown from, who would want that? A few of you. The few of you who actually know something about gardening know that that's good stuff right there. Corn is like a lot of our cultural topics like art and sports and politics. They're very important, but they all find their beginning in the soil that they grow from. And family in many ways is the starting place, the soil of all aspects of culture. Family isn't just a part of culture, but it's the soil from which culture grows. Economics starts with allowance. Architecture begins with Legos. Political discourse uh, gets sorted out as brothers and sisters fight at the dinner table. Much theology is shaped during bedtime prayers, and what happens in the context of our families has a ripple effect for the common good or a ripple effect of brokenness through all aspects of culture. So tonight we're going to reflect on that. We're going to reflect on family. Why is it a good thing? its impact on culture, how do we as believers sort through some of the questions that all families uh, relate to, what happens when you've had a broken family and pain in your family. We're going to touch on many of those things tonight. Just to give you a heads up, we're not going to cover anything comprehensively. We're going to have four quick talks. They're all going to be 10 minutes long. One is going to be from Ryan Arneson, one of our pastors. He's going to talk about the culture of family. Ricardo's going to talk about, uh, Ricardo, one of our other pastors, he's going to talk about family for the common good. We're going to have an interview with two women who will talk about what we can do as the church to be family to those who are hurting and don't have uh, a family. And then also, uh, Tim Anderson, one of our other pastors, is going to talk about how do we deal with some of the brokenness in the family tree? What happens when some of those limbs snap? in the family tree so that's what we're going to talk about tonight we'll also have a panel where you'll be able to text in questions why don't you go ahead and throw up the instructions for the text message questions right there so throughout the night if you have any questions go ahead and text all of life to 411 and then send your question write all of life and then write whatever your question is so that's how you're going to go ahead and send any questions that you have related to family tonight Uh, With that said, uh, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask you a question to discuss around your tables. Father, we are grateful that you have welcomed us into your family. We are grateful that amidst the brokenness and pain of this world, you have come near to us through your son, and we thank you that we can call you Father. Lord, we have brothers and sisters here in this room. Give us attentive hearts. Help us to learn from each other. Uh, Help our hearts to be in a place of rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, and our minds to be in a place where we generously and sharply wrestle with the questions that come up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who's seen the the commercial of the most interesting man in the world? All right? I'm going to ask this question around your tables. Who's the most interesting person in your family? Who's that crazy uncle, that really interesting person? Uh, that you want to share with everybody. So discuss with those around you, the most interesting person in your family, and Ryan will come up in a minute. All right. Good
2: evening, everybody. Uh, We're just going to kick it right off. I I got 10 minutes here, and the clock is ticking already. So uh, we're going to start tonight by talking about how to create a a culture in your family. Uh, Everybody is creating a culture in their family. So we want to talk about, like, how do you create the right culture in your family. So let's get it started. Uh, Before we do this, we're going to first consider uh, there was a culture that was first set for the first male and female in their relationship. It seems that they lived outside. They were not clothed. They were provided with food and work and told they were supposed to fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, The birds of the air, the cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps. Basically, this is the beginning of the first society, and a man and a woman were at the head of it, and this is the family. They were instructed that they could eat from every tree except for one, and God came to meet with them every day in the cool of the day. So, to reiterate, they're naked, they're outside, they have work to do, plenty of food, they're not afraid. And God meets with them in the best part of every day. I don't know about you guys, that sounds pretty good to me. So, unfortunately, they ate from the tree they were instructed not to, and a few things happened. They were ashamed, they covered themselves, they hid from God. They had an enemy that was now able to harm them. Pain was increased in childbirth. The wife desired control over her husband, and now her husband rules over her. The ground is cursed. God told them that their enemy would bruise the heel of the woman's seed, but he would crush the enemy's head. And he made them garments of skin to clothe their shame. These were two acts of goodwill, love and hope. The earth and its families were pretty bad for a period of time, and God floods the whole earth, and he leaves just one family to start over again. And as we follow the story of the world, it starts with that one family. The thing about family is everybody has one. Inside of us is an innate desire to be part of a family and to be loved unconditionally. This desire is supposed to be fulfilled in our natural family, a place where there's no sense of losing your identity when you're being disciplined, you're fully convinced that you're loved. A place where the sense of home is fulfilled and not just because you never move. A place where your failures are allowed to be admitted and you're forgiven and you're free to try again. A place where authority is motivated by love for each other as opposed to an unhealthy fear or a desire for control. This model has been abused in society and culture many times over, but it remains still the single largest influence on individuals and the culture of all societies. Does this mean that everybody must be married and bear children. Uh, Not necessarily, but it's it's either everybody is desiring to be part of a family. So how do we create a culture in our families that will have an effect on our society? So I'm going to propose a framework or boundary walls for the culture of a family. The family is comprised of a father and mother and children, and beyond that, grandpa and grandma, aunts, uncles, Cousins, aunties, papa, nana, father and mother are in a covenant relationship with each other that is broken by death alone. The center of this family is tethered to God's love, and it motivates everyone's role within that structure. Husband and wife submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. The husband's role is at the head of the structure, and the authority that he's been given by God is to lay his life down for his wife and to bring his children up in the fear and training of God without angering or embittering them. His role should look something like this, if, if we had that. As opposed to a boss standing and directing, he's the one out leading and doing. His decision to lay his life down for his wife is not based on whether or not she deserves it, but because Jesus has done that for him. The wife's, the wife's role is that of nurturing her children, and to share in teaching and training the children as well, and also to submit to and respect her husband. Her submission and respect of her husband is not based on whether her husband deserves it, but because Jesus has done that for her and she trusts him. Children are to obey their parents and follow them, not because they deserve it, but because they trust that God will always lead them to the place that's best for them. He loves us. So these are foundational things for all families, But a specific application depends on each family, a time, place, the number of kids you have, economics, personalities, ethnicities, brokenness, etc. And what we find sometimes, I was talking with Jim this week, is that there's so many books and blogs and radio programs that make way too many things foundational or mandatory for all people And what we need is wisdom on how to apply God's principles to all of our specific situations. So although their specific situations are going to be different for each family, it's important to be intentional about the culture that you're creating in your family and not just let it happen all the time. So let me give you some examples from our marriage, uh, from education, discipline, eating and sleeping, and resting. I'm going to use these as examples. First, in marriage. So, uh, given some of the temptations that my wife and I have seen from our past, we made a a very conscious decision uh, at the beginning of our marriage that we were not going to let the nightlight go out on our anger because the sun goes down. And we we just said, we'll stay up until we have to resolve something. Also, I spent so many nights up late watching television and doing foolish things when I was younger that I decided very early, very early I was going to bed whenever my wife went to bed, and I'm pretty sure this has kept me from letting my mind wander and watching a lot of stuff that I probably would have regretted later. So education. God explains to us in his word that the parents are the ones responsible for the education of their children, and specifically in the things of God. We chose a homeschool our, our kids, as our primary form of education, which does not mean that's what everybody has to do. But each couple or parent should evaluate their situation. They should pray and ask God uh, how he would best want them to educate their children. In discipline, uh, it seems every time we, we bring up discipline that the one thing that comes to the forefront of everybody's mind is spanking. And so the Bible makes a pretty strong case for corporal punishment or spanking, but it doesn't mean that that's always the best decision for discipline for every child. Um, and, and even when we, we, were, we would use that and we spank our children, it's very important to understand that included in that is an explanation, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration in that process. It's not just a punishment. So we should never spank our children because we're mad or inconvenienced, but because they are in conscious rebellion to us or to God. But in a much bigger sense, discipline is not just punishment. It's more receiving a training for a way of life. Okay, eating and sleeping. These are two of the most basic functions of life. And we thought if you can't be trained in how and what you eat, and if you can't put yourself to sleep, uh, these will probably affect every area of our life. So we've done two things pretty pretty rigidly, I guess you could say. Uh, bedtime is pretty strictly observed in our house, which provides a date night every night for my wife and I. And then our children, we observe pretty closely how they use food. Uh, and we try to instruct them on how to match how they use food with whatever lifestyle we believe God has called them to, whether they'd be an athlete or, or whatever it would be. We don't, we don't just let them eat whenever and whatever they want to eat. Rest. We've made it a priority in our family to have fun as a family union, a unit and not as just as separate individuals. There are three main ways that we have set to do this. First, generally at night, we meet in one of the kids' rooms where we talk about the day, What God is doing. Sometimes we read something from the Bible. We'll sing a worship song, which sounds pretty bad. uh, But (laughs) we love it. We sing really loud. (laughs) And then one or more of us, sometimes all of us, will pray. Second, each week we take a day off that is spent together as a family. This day is protected and and rarely interrupted by anything, uh, really. And especially if that's something that's work-related or that would separate our family out. Um, Lastly, we adopted a philosophy that my dad taught me growing up, which is always have something to look forward to. So we've made vacation a really big deal in our home, and we set the stage all year that vacation is a time that we will spend together as a family and learn what we love to do as a family. So in conclusion, we've discovered that the best time for training our kids happens in the midst of real life for instance we've taught our kids about anger patience and forgiveness when we have a conflict with our neighbor or we find out what's in their hearts during a, a rollerblade ride on the golf course we've taught them about respect and honesty when they desire to be first so bad at the track between races we've learned what it li- what it feels like to be left out of a cool crowd and not participate in something because it violates your conscience. Many times conversations will open up while we're working on something at the house, taking a run to the dump, which my kids love, stopping for hot dogs at the gas station, and somebody steals gas right in front of us. Or when your child asks other kids what they believe about God, and those kids reject them, and they find not everyone believes what we believe. Through all of it, we've tried to teach this main message, God first loved us, he's at the head of our home, and God blesses us, and we want to be a blessing to others. We work hard to create an environment in our family where our family's first thought would be, how best can I serve the other? Thanks.
0: All right. Hey, real quick, we were supposed to mention this earlier and we didn't, and um, we are going to probably use a word that rhymes with X just for you guys who have kids so that you know you have 30 seconds to to leave the room if you don't want your kids to know about X. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know what? I'm just going to say X. You don't have to go anywhere now that you guys know. (laughs) Now that you know. Um, okay, so here's what I have in about eight and a half minutes, and so is my topic particularly is talking about marriage and the common good, and what I want to be able to do from a non-biblical perspective is look at and highlight the benefits of marriage as we have in our particular society. As Ryan has already stated, it does not need to be that everybody needs to enter into the covenant of marriage, but when you do enter into the covenant of marriage, and you desire to enter into the covenant of marriage, and you find a person that desires to enter into the covenant of marriage with you, it's a good thing. Um, and there's some benefits from there. So I have three points to kind of guide the structure of my time. Uh, that first point that I have is put a ring on it. We'll talk about that. Um, the second one is let's talk about X, baby. Um, and then last one is I believe the children are the future. So as you know, modus, most of these have something to do with some sort of reference of R&B. So first one, put a, put a ring on it, okay? So I want you guys to finish my sentence for me, okay? Um, Holly and Ricardo sitting in the tree. First comes love, then comes marriage, that's not all, that's not all. Everyone who said the baby's drinking al- alcohol grew up somewhere in the hood, thank you so much. <laughs> I, test, I tested that out on, we, I tested on about 15 people before we started, Jim, my boy, was the only one who got it. Everybody else was like, uh, what's wrong with the baby, right? And so. <laughs> He's drinking alcohol. Okay, so there's, there's this process here that even as kids we understand a story. We understand a process. That is, two people sitting in a tree. All of a sudden, those two people are in love with one another. The next process is they get married, and the next process is they have kids. Now, that's a very, very good model. And I think God is okay with that particular model. Is that you have that. And then when you have that marriage, you have this family that's intact. You have what is known as the nuclear family. It's a very good thing. And so coming to the first thing is put a ring on it. Meaning if you want to get married, get married. And marriage is a benefit to our culture. That when people are married, it's a very good thing. One of the things that's helpful for it's economically. That it, it studies show that people who are married make more money. Now, it's not a get rich scream like, oh, if I get a wife, I get more bread. That's not a saying. It's just saying naturally they do. Um, it's actually a lifter of poverty in our particular country, in our particular culture, that many people who get married have a higher statistics and chances of being out of a poor neighborhood and to a better neighborhood, having a better environment for their kids. Not just economically what you have for this, but you also have it socially. We are socially minded people as, as, a, as, a, as a nation. That there are certain laws and there are certain policies that are in place for us to be able to care about the other. Now, when people are married, they're most likely to volunteer. They're most likely to be generous. They're most likely to give up their self and their time and their money. You can think about your own life and family, friends that you've had, and how you've come into their house and you've eaten their food your entire life growing up, right? Some of us had friends like that that their family was such a good family that you basically lived at their house. For me. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the other families in my neighborhood. My friends' families essentially adopted me into their house. They served, they volunteered, et cetera, because they had the stability and oftentimes even the time to be able to serve. Now, that's not to say that non-married people don't serve and they don't volunteer. So the first one, you put a ring on it, there's a benefit to the culture economically. There's a benefit to the culture relationally. Let me read a few things here. Um, One, married women report higher levels of physical and psychological health. Um, married people are more likely to volunteer. Um, being married increases the likelihood of affluence. Um, how about this one? Married people tend to experience less depression and fewer problems of alcohol. Men who married and stayed married tend to be less depressed than those who remained single. Um, that's not funny. <laughs> um, among women, marriage was associated with fewer alcohol problems. I mean, just think about that practically. Let's take our faith um, and, and just say a religion, Any, just take it practically out of it. Um, when you go out, or if you weren't a Christian, and I know you, you know, Christians don't go out and drink. If you weren't a Christian and you went out and you drink, chances are you were drinking socially with some friends to meet somebody. When you have that somebody, you're well with that somebody, chances are you're saving way more money. You no longer spend $4 on a beer at Four Peaks. You go to Costco and you get, it. you do other things, right? <laughs> so, First, number one, put a ring on it. they got to get moving on. Number two, let's talk about sex, baby. All right. 1990, Salt and pepper, right? Not pepper. Salt and pepper had this song. How many of you guys were born in 1990? Right? Wow. Wow. So while they were ta- singing a song, let's talk about it, your parents. <laughs> X. So what, what, what was happening now, what we had is, is let's talk about it, is the thought is, and our culture is The multiple partners, the better experience, because we we seek pleasure. Um, That we think being committed to one person, a monogamous relationship, and a man and a woman, and a covenant of marriage, that that in itself would be mundane. I can recall having a conversation with a coach of mine, and he was saying, and I said, hey, how's your wife? How's your family? True story. um, Someone who I looked up to, and he says, oh, you know. He goes, let me just tell you. Have all the fun you can before you get married. And I said, why? And he says, do you like steak? And I said, I love steak. Would you want steak every night? And I was like, I don't. Yeah. Uh, right? And let me just tell you, since we're speaking in code language, for those of you who are not married, you don't get steak every night. So <laughs> there, what you do have, <laughs> we're, we're, gonna just, we're stopping right there. But what you do have is you have all the researchers show that those who are married in a committed relationship, especially for an extended period of time, have higher satisfaction when it comes to the area of X. Right. And so when it comes to that, um, there's actually uh, more satisfaction by being committed. Now, one of the reasons why they say that is it's more, th- other than just cohabitation, where the person's fully not committed, that's committing emotionally, physically, spiritually, etc., and then giving yourself fully. Then in a covenant marriage, that you, that the, um, the pressure of performance begins to be removed because there actually is a commitment there. And the commitment matters that you're in this with me, and I'm in this with you. And so there's a greater, there's a greater degree of satisfaction. Um, okay, which brings me to my last point, probably the most important part, is um, I believe the children of the future. Anybody? Who? Anybody? Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston, right? 1985. So you guys are the future. You guys in the '90s. She sung that. You guys are born after Salt and Pepper song. Um, and so we have the children. And what I mean by that is what marriages are able to do in our society. When it comes to neighborhoods where majority of the people are married, people that have more married people and families, here's a particular that happens with those particular kids um, from a, st- a, a statistic standpoint um, in those neighborhoods. One, it says this: um, children raised in the, uh, families that are married are more likely to attend college and are physically and emotionally healthier, and less likely to be physically or sexually abused are less likely to use drugs and alcohol to commit delinquent behaviors, and have decreased risk of divorcing when they get married, um, are less likely to become pregnant or impregnate, impregnate someone as a teenager. Now, that doesn't say it doesn't happen. That means they're just less likely for those particular things. Number two, children receive gender-specific support from having a mother and a father. Research shows that particular roles of mothers um, to nurture and fathers to discipline as well as the complex biologically rooted interactions are important for the development of boys and girls. And so when you think about that, it's not that the mother is the only one who's nurture, who nurtures, it's not the father is the only one who disciplines. However, in my family, when it comes to my boys, when my boys are sick, when they're crying, they're hurt, they usually don't run to me and say daddy, right? They run to Holly. However, when they've been doing stuff they shouldn't be able to do, they usually try to run to Holly and Holly says daddy, right? And because there's a discipline side of that, that usually comes from there. Um, number three here is a child living with a single mother. Hear this. It's 14 times more likely to suffer serious physical abuse than a child living with the mother and uh, a biological parent. A child whose mother cohabitates with a man other than the child's father is 33 times more likely to suffer serious physical child abuse. Last one here. And married families, about one-third of the adolescents are sexually active. For teenagers and step-families, cohabiting households, divorced families, and those with single, unwed parents, the percentage rises above one half. Let me close with this. I grew up with a mother and a father. Um, I love my mom and I love my dad. We had our issues. We did not have a normal family. My parents' parents were divorced. My parents' parents were divorced. There's not a whole lot of married people in my family. There's very few people in my family that are married, and especially married to the same person that they married the first time. Um, my dad was in and out of our household, so it was like I had a dad and it was like I didn't have a dad. And all of these statistics begin to play themselves out. When I look back and I theologically reflect upon my particular life, when I was 12 years old, I smoked my first joint um, with other kids, when I look back on it, who also did not have parents. The irony was those were not even my best friends. The friends that I grew up to, they're still friends, uh, to my friends today that were in my wedding, those friends had parents, both parents in the household. None of them ever did that. Not Christians, they never did that. Um, The other thing about that is when I began to be sexually active, I was much younger than what I should have been. I was a very, 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 I was a boy. Think about those of you who have children. I was 13 years old. Your kids will be 13 before you know it. Um, Because I was a latchkey kid, my mom had to work a whole lot, my dad was gone, my dad was in jail, and I experienced those things. Fast forward now, in my particular family, my kids are able to see me and their mother every single morning kiss each other, pray with them, feed them, bathe them, get to the school, pick them up, bring them home. Very, very mundane things. But what we learn is in those mundane, everyday things, it helps produce produce in them security, um, emotional love, affection, um, concern for who they are, care for others, all the things that Ryan mentioned. Just because I love their mother and their mother loves me and we collectively love them, that's actually a blessing not just to them, but to whoever they come in contact with and our neighborhood as a whole. And so marriage in itself is a good thing, um, whether you believe in Jesus or not, and especially because of the effects that it has on the children. Thank you. Okay, moving along, one question I have for you guys to kick around your tables or at least in the uh, chairs that you guys are in the back is this, what is one family activity or um, event that you guys did as a family that still influences you today? So something you did as a family, um, as an activity, as an event that still influences you today. You got one, buddy? What is it? He raised his hand. Yeah, decorate the Christmas tea at Christmas children of the future. (laughs) So the rest of you guys, you guys can go along and you guys can share that and uh, Jimmy back here in a second.
1: Let's draw our conversation to a close. Who here now has one of those three songs stuck in your head? (laughs) It's gonna be in there for a few weeks, trust me. Um, The next part of our night, I want to address a question that many of us are thinking and this is the question what about me? What about the situation that I'm in? Because it's easy to think about the Cleavers who have 2.5 kids and are living the American dream, but what if I've experienced divorce in my family? What if I've been through a divorce? What if I'm, I'm single like Jesus and like Paul? Pretty big deal of people who also were single. What if I've experienced some pain uh, in, in my life. What about me? Does this family stuff apply to me? And it does because we are the church. We are the community that is organized around the God who's called the father to the fatherless. And if God is the father, who's the mother? The church. The bride of Christ is the mother that comes and and nurtures and is a place for those who have a hard time with family or can't find family or who've been abandoned by family we are the the place where people come and as a church the church is called we are an adopted people and we are called to the work of adoption officially legally adopting children who need homes but also the unofficial adoption of saying hey you're an older person I need an influence in my life who's like a fatherly influence. I'm now adopting you as my, uh, as my little pretend father figure. We are the community that does that. So I have two people that I think can give us some instruction on how we can do that as a church. And I'm going to interview them. Uh, Kirsten Traina and Kami Thevenate. Go ahead and give them a hand as they come up. So Kirsten and Kami, uh, you might want to grab one of those mics. Um, the reason why I invited them up here, for f- specific reasons, Kirsten uh, oversees the adoption and foster care stuff that we do as a church. Uh, she's also an adoptive mother of a cute little girl, um, and Cammy's a social worker, and she's also, she she's one of the most amazing people I know at boldly saying, hey, I've had a rough family background, but I'm adopting you as a part of my family, and I need you, and we're going to support each other. So, we're going to ask them some questions on how we live that out. Cami, I want to start with you. Uh, you're a social worker. From your vantage point as a social worker, what have you learned about the importance of family?
3: So, I work with uh, youth who are aging out of foster care, so 16 to 21-year-olds, um, and I have realized even more so the importance of family working with these youth. So my one of the main parts of my job is to find natural supports or family-like people for these kids who don't have anyone supporting them. And um that so 50% of kids who are in foster care end up being homeless. And 37% of our homeless population were at one time or another in foster care. Um, And not having those natural supports really shows, (coughs) excuse me, on a practical and an emotional level. Um, I know like I learned how to clean the house, do my laundry, have hygiene, good hygiene, like all those different things by growing up in a family and seeing my parents do those things, but also understanding how to have relationships with people, how to communicate, how to um, trust people, how to be relational with people. And when you don't have those things, you don't have the resources to be a productive person um, and that can just lead you to having not very many options to consider.
1: Sure, sure. So Kirsten, we as a church, we've decided that we want to open up our homes. We want to care about kids in the foster care system and uh, who need to be adopted and those sorts of things. What are we doing as a church and how does that have the potential to be a healing action in a world of broken families?
4: I love redemption because I think that their take on it is is so big is that um that when we look at james 127 we look at taking care of the orphans and the widows it's not just the foster kids it's not just mm-hmm. the kids in and that and what i see with redemption doing is i see families that are taking in foster kids um in a society where biological parents whose kids are in foster care are just absolutely vilified um in the media on i mean you name it and there are bad situations but If anyone's going to get it, it's the church who gets that brokenness is what sin has caused. And so I see redemption families coming alongside um, foster kids, but then ministering to their parents and bringing their parents to church. And working with that, with the goal of reunification for families and doing that, we're doing a lot of classes. We begin a series of classes in in May that we're finding kinship families, which are grandparents and aunts and uncles Mm -hmm. that are raising their their relatives and their children, their their families' kids, um, and then biological parents whose kids have been removed from them, coming to these classes and coming alongside. And I, I sat through one, and a lady just kind of said, "Well, I'm, I d- my kids were taken away," and she mm-hmm. was really quiet. And the person next to her said, "Oh my gosh, this is. We are here to help you." And you could just see her just visibly relax and be like, "Okay, these are people that get that that this is this is what happens, and that it's bad, but but God is bigger than that." And yeah. so. Yeah. I think
1: that's big. yeah. Yeah. Well, and you are someone who isn't just you. Just don't you don't just talk about yeah. adoption, but you are an actually an adoptive parent. What have you learned about family from th- what your family looks like?
4: I, my husband, I have a little girl. She's three, and um, we learned that I asked. We were talking about this the other day, and I said, you know, what do you what do you think about adoption? And he goes it doesn't, it's not a big deal. It's, it's what we did. It's what God planned our family for. If, if we believe that God is sovereign and he plans families before creation, this is the little girl that God had for us, whether it was a biological child or whether it was a kid we adopted. And when you look at her, she is exactly the kid we're supposed to be. Mm. Um, if you were to blend all my freckles together, that's what color she is. So, Mm um, we have the same smile, we have the same laugh, and it's because that's who God intended for our family to be. Um, so, yeah, she's pretty spectacular, but I'm completely biased.
1: She is spectacular. Um, can we tell us a little bit about your family background?
3: Um, yeah, so my parents got divorced when I was six, and they were both around, but not super present all the time. Um, my mom was more of a roommate to me growing up than a mom um I took care of her a lot more I we talked about a lot of things you probably shouldn't talk to your little daughter about growing up um I knew all about her love life and all of her struggles and um kind of like walked her through life instead of it being the other way around um and that was it was really hard just like watching me mature more than my mom was maturing and um That left a super bitter taste in my mouth towards older women, because I wanted, like I had a biological mother, um, but I didn't have a mom, and that's what I really, really wanted um, so desperately, and I still do, and was just never really an option for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, tell us about how you've intentionally sought family from the church.
3: Yeah, so when I realized that I hated older women, I realized that that was a problem, Um and that I should probably do something about it. And so I did that in a couple of ways. One being I would um like see an older woman that I thought was interesting or maybe could be interesting, and I would just walk up to her and be like, Hi, I'm Cami, I'm looking for a mentor. Do you wanna go on a date with me? (laughs) And um sometimes they'd say no and that's fine because people are busy. Um sometimes we'd go and it wouldn't work out, and that's just part of relationships in general, like understanding that there is a calculated risk and being hurt in that. Um, And then sometimes we would go and hit it off, and it would be wonderful. Um, And I would be mentored by a great godly woman who would be very motherly to me, and I would have, like, a fake mom who really loved me. And initially it it started out as me just seeking, like, what I felt um, I wasn't given and should have been given um, in a mom. But eventually turned into um, me being parts of their families and knowing their husbands and knowing their kids and babysitting and having dinner with them um, in their homes. Um, And so that's one way. And then another way, too, I did junior high and high school ministry for a very long time. And I was always a big fan of meeting with my girls, like, in their homes with their families and through doing that became super close with a couple different families and like I go on their family vacations with them and stuff Mm -hmm. um, which is really awesome and I was able to find the family and find the mom or moms um, that I always wanted even though um, they aren't my biological family Um, I just I just because I didn't have that in my life in my biological life in my my actual family. I found family in the church and in yeah. other women.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Cammie. Thank you, Kirsten. Would you give him a hand? Um, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Stay, stay, stay. <clears throat> if you um, want to, f- to be a part of what we're doing with foster care and adoption, there's some forms on the table. Fill those out. Um, get a hold of Kirsten. She will help you do that. But uh, we have a posture of of legally adopting people, but also let's have a posture as a church of adoption. Look around. These are your family members. If you're a little older here, there are single people who have, need to have a space at your table as a family. Single people, when you get there, don't be needy only. Like, help out, do some chores, do some dishes, watch the kids. Let's, let's pray uh, for some of our families in here. Father, we've, um, we've gone through, uh, a lot of us have gone through pain. A lot of us, it's not easy, Lord. Uh, um, we've we've had uh, we things that we need to forgive, and help us to forgive our the wounds uh, those who've wounded us in our family, and uh, we receive forgiveness for the wounds that we've caused. But also, God, we pray that you would help us as a church to be a church that always has an extra plate uh, at the table, welcoming each other and being family to each other, because you are the. Father to the fatherless. In Jesus' name, amen. Our next speaker, this will be our last speaker for the night, uh, is before our panel, is Tim Anderson, who is the wise sage, so he'll get to close off the night. So come on up, Tim, and would you give Tim a hand?
5: Yeah, I love that when they call me the wise sage. That's no pressure there. Um, it's interesting just sitting listening to all this and and i kind of realize i may have an idol of family um i love my family and i think a little bit too much so i'm going to seek help for that uh, just so you know well a couple of weeks ago the elders and some of our staff went to memphis to go to a conference on diversity a diverse church and uh, one of the big takeaways one of the early speakers said ministry is autobiographical and i thought well you know what your, your life is a story you step into any family gathering, and they are telling stories. It is woven into the fabric of family. If you listen, most of the conversations revolve around everybody's inability to remember dates when things happened, right? So the next few, so a few years ago, I decided to become the family historian. So at the next family gathering, when the normal, when where were we? When did that happen? What year was that? Conversations cropped up. I stopped them cold with facts thinking I had done them a great favor. Result of that is that they hated me (laughs) and I was temporarily voted out of the family. I had broken the sacred family code of story. It is a necessary component of life to learn other people's stories and be willing to share our own. As we become more intentional storytellers, we begin to progressively understand the lens people speak through, the world they have walked in And the experiences that have shaped their lives. On Sunday, when Ricardo showed that picture of his family, you want to throw that up there? That's awesome in so many ways. That's Ricardo's story, that's his heritage. And again, if Holly is unnecessary or unneeded, she's easily cropped out. (laughs) See that? She's gone. Let me throw up my family up there just for fun, courtesy of Mr. David Blakeman, the photographer. And it was, in the, it was at night. Um, so at some point, that'll come up. Uh, so because of story, it seems only fair that I tell you my story, and I'll make it fast. Uh, I'm one of seven children, Catholic, and I sit right in the middle as the fourth kid, six boys and one poor girl. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'll tell her you, you felt that. Uh, I'm clearly my, favorite, my parents' favorite child and I tend to ride that bad boy for all it's worth until they leave the planet. They love me. I, s- I spent zero to 12 in Southern California, 13 to 37 in Portland, Oregon, and 38 to 59 in Arizona with one internet bubble year in Seattle. I've been married for nearly 38 years and I have four children and 16 grandchildren, which that picture showed. Um, My oldest son, Justin, who's the founding pastor of this church, he lives in San Francisco, is married to Emily, and they have four children. My youngest son, Evan, is a banker. He's married to Caitlin, our children's ministry director, and up until recently was our tech guy here, so this sanctuary in this church has his fingerprints all over it. They also have four children. Uh, My oldest daughter, Laurel, lives in Wichita Falls, Texas, and is married to an Air Force fighter pilot. Uh, She is the apple of my eye and can do no wrong, but they are slackers, and they only have three children. Uh, my youngest daughter, Angie, who we adopted after we realized we had room for one more, uh, she's unmarried, but she has five children, and they're currently in the custody of the state of Arizona, and she lives in Tempe. Didn't know I was going to get emotional on that one. There's our brokenness. We have a lovely family, but in every family there, is a broken, there are broken pieces, and she is, she is that girl. So that's our current reality. Not perfect, we have challenges, but we are connected by experience, by our larger extended family, and by our faith. We have shared values, shared memories, and a growing desire to draw closer to each other. Back in the day, I found genealogies in Scripture kind of irritating, like, you know, you skip over them. But one day, in a moment of clarity, I read through them with a new set of eyes. Not only could I find some crazy name for a new grandbaby, but they were inspiring to think about, you can create a family tree and can be a part of something bigger than yourself. My parents have 70 people that have sprung from their relationship of 65 years of marriage, still going strong. They have 30 great-grandchildren, seven years and under. That's one every three months. (laughs) So needless to say, family is a big deal in my life. But honestly, as much as I love my family, you guys are much easier to be around. You know as much about me as I will share. You see the best version of me, and you demand very little of me. Thank you. (laughs) Family, on the other hand, knows every little thing about me, has seen the worst version, and demands everything, and has an opinion about everything you do, everything I do, either shared directly to your face or in the preferred way that most families do, behind your back. So I feel what we have done is made Facebook or friends our go-to source for love and encouragement and affirmation, because it is simply easier, with less traps, and the biggest piece is we can control it. I call it RFB, Real Family Bypass. I want to propose to you tonight that it is a system that is upside down, eventually unsatisfying and potentially dangerous. Please don't hear me say that friends are unimportant. They are. But they can be an escape from the from dealing with your family that god has placed you in to prosper i have this theory that people have about 10 layers and most of us sit at layer one or two some of that's just practical we can't possibly dive deeply into everybody's lives but we settle at level one or two because it's it's comfortable and it's controllable and it's a long way from transparency once you get deep with somebody You feel a little exposed, a little vulnerable, and you begin to feel like you've lost some control of your narrative. Fast forward to family, and they're pinning the needle at 9 or 10. They have seen you in all your glory and have information that can make or break you. My wife has seen it all with me, and she has the power within her to take me down publicly, but I trust she won't. Your friends are not privy to that kind of information because you have been spooning it out to them in manageable doses. All that to say that during this month of celebrating family, I want to recognize how difficult it can be to be part of a family. But I want to encourage you to be bold and brave and turn back towards them because you know what? They are not going anywhere. They're gonna show up at Christmas, at weddings, at funerals, and if you don't figure out a way to understand and love them, it'll be a constant source of anxiety discontent and frustration. Your family has a story, and my desire for my time here is to encourage you to embrace your family, understand the effect they have on you, and understand they are forever, they are important, and they are foundational. So often I hear in my conversation with people that their families are unimportant, discardable, and they are a burden. The most common negative description I get is, mom is a little crazy, and dad is a little distant. My heart grieves when families are broken, relationships are unsafe, and when there's a disconnect and destructive emotions connected to family relationships. A big part of my job here is to encourage and help people with their original families and come alongside new couples that are trying to begin a brand new family unit. Again, I'm not naive to the fact that families are challenging and some situations require boundaries and distance for safety's sake. I'm living that reality with my youngest daughter as we speak but they are so important and structurally significant to your life and to society as a whole. I vowed never to be the guy that waxes nostalgic about the good old days, because generally our memory of those days can be fuzzy and selective. But I will say there's been a major shift in my lifetime on the role and structure of the family. There's been one very obvious change. When I was in sixth grade, we had two classes of 50 kids. Think about, that's 100 kids but two nuns and two rulers, there was order. Amongst those hundred kids, there were two kids that were divorced. It was rare and it was unusual. We didn't know what to do with them. It almost feels like we flipped that on its head and have, it, that has become the new normal. As we have become a culture that is increasingly self-centered and fractured, it has a massive effect on family. Studies have shown that people think history began the day they were born and the past is almost irrelevant. Your current history did begin at that moment, but you have generations before you that have shaped you by geography, ethnicity, education, and attitudes, and have more influence on you today than you might think. Our identity is in Christ, we know that, but our families are shapers and culture makers. We operate in a system with rules and traditions and mannerisms that seem so subtle at times that we are not even aware of them. So what is the point? Simple. If you have drifted away from your family or there are issues, turn back and embrace them in a loving, grace-filled way. Find out who these people are. Go back generationally as far as you can. Talk to family members, heal the wounds, tell the truth, find a safe way to get close. As a culture, we know the cost of the family breaking down. I believe that you find a way to love your family, engage them intentionally, honestly, and often. Friendships and relationships beyond them will be so easy because you have done the heavy lifting with the hardest people. A practical way we can help is a class I will lead based on the book Forgiving Fathers and Mothers by Leslie Fields. We'll begin that in June as part of a a book club and then we'll continue on for those who want to. Uh, This is not a witch hunt to unearth all your daddy issues but it's the best book I've ever read on forgiveness. We love to hang on to hurts and bitterness, and this book is really helpful and encouraging to see our parents and relatives through God's eyes and allow us to move forward in grace and mercy. You can be an agent of change in your family, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, a willing heart, and a tough skin, you can make it happen. Well, let me close with a, with a family story. It's odd, but I, I just feel like I have to tell it. Um, my dad's grandfather... Um, Grew up in the South, Little Rock, Arkansas, St. Louis, Um, and he died in the in the mid 30s. So when he died, the family went into the house to look at all his belongings, and they deep in a closet they found a uh, a red hood. As a he was a Grand Dragon of the KKK. Yeah. Uh, When I first heard that story, of course, shocked and appalled, but then I thought about my grandmother, his daughter and things started to click. My grandmother was a suffragette. She marched for the woman's right to vote. She was a college graduate in 1916. And yet, she was a born-again racist. She never accepted my aunt, who was Mexican, and I felt that as a child. That is a narrative woven into my family history. Without knowing that, my life could have looked quite different. But my father was the agent of change, He reoriented the family towards Jesus and the church, and we followed his leadership. I would encourage you to take a hard look at your family, find ways to engage, to unite, to love. Uh, To many of you, this may be foreign, what I'm saying, because you're walking with a healthy family. Your part in this is to thank those people that made that happen and be a guardian against forces that might attempt to tear at the fabric of your family. Protect the precious gift of family wholeheartedly and with tenacity. Let me close with Galatians 4. It says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. Amen. Amen.
1: So uh, take a moment real quick to ask a question around your table. Um, how about this as a question, what's a story that keeps getting told over and over again within your family, what, your favorite story that's often repeated? So go ahead and discuss in the table and we'll have the panel come up in just a second.
6: All right, folks, we're going to ho- go ahead and get okay. started. If you haven't already sent your message through, the directions are up on the screen for how to send in your question. So again, you can text ALL OF LIFE to 411247. 247 And remember, when you send in your question, you have to write ALL OF LIFE, again, followed by your question, or it will get rejected back to you. So I've certainly learned a lot tonight. I'm eager to see um, what the questions are. Do we have the first one? to get up there all right in what ways do you think the definition of family has changed since the time of jesus
5: i wasn't around <laughs> during the time of jesus <laughs>
6: <laughs> come on our wise sage i <laughs> say ryan why don't you answer that oh
2: um you know uh, that's a good question um We were kind of talking about that today. The first thing that comes to my mind is that, especially when you read in Ephesians or in 1 Peter, if I'm remembering it correctly, um, uh, the definition of a husband and a wife and their roles is equated to Christ and the church, and so... I think what you see as far as I, I don't know that I could say it's changed that much, but more that it became a clearer picture of this is supposed to be one of the main representations of who Jesus is, what the church looks like, how much he loves his bride. And so when you see him describing those roles, and it refers to at the end of, of the roles in Ephesians 5 saying, this is in reference to Christ in the church, I think it, it gives a clearer picture that when you look at a marriage, you're, you're supposed to be looking at a representation of who Jesus and his body that he died for. That's, that's what it's supposed to look like. And so, in some ways, I think it, uh, it added maybe a little, a little weight to it, even in the way that Jesus talked to his disciples about, marriage, um, when they asked him about how they're supposed to treat their wives, and he answered them, their response was, oh, if that's what marriage is, then I, you know, I don't want to do that, you know? And so he was giving, setting the stage that you, you can't, this isn't something that you can just get out of because you have an issue. This is a covenant that's been made between you two and God, and, and it can't be it can't be broken by any, what any man does.
6: Thanks, Ryan. And I, um, I forgot something I was supposed to do when I first got up here, which was to in- introduce the lovely lady that's sitting next to Ryan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is Janet Arneson. Um, <laughs> anything good that Ryan said tonight probably came from Janet because she's his lovely li- wife.
0: <laughs> Today is Ryan's 40th birthday.
6: Happy birthday. So he was the appropriate one to answer the question about Jesus' time.
1: (laughs) Glad I got that right. Yeah.
6: Thanks, Ryan. What's the next question? Why do you think people in your family can drive you crazy more than other relationships? Tim?
5: Because they have the goods on you. Right? They know you. They see you in every moment. And again, like I said, they, you give a more sanitized version to the world. And, and this, that's just real life family. They just, they just know too much.
6: <laughs> Plain and simple. Does anybody want to add to that? No? <laughs> what are practical ways for the church to be family? As a single person, I depend depend more on the church for family connection, especially with a biological family that does not share my faith. <coughs> Let me read that one more time. What are practical ways for the church to be family? As a single person, I depend more on the church for family connection, especially with a biological family that does not share my faith. Janet, do you want to speak into that?
7: Yeah, I mean my family i came from divorced family and um i was too a lot like cami i was definitely searching for other families and my friends i would notice i would be the kid that would be in the kitchen talking with the mom hanging out with her probably as much as i was with my friend Um, so i think i i love that now that we're married that's something that i really wanted was to be a strong family and i love when our neighbor kids come over and And I know there's certain kids that are the same way, you know, they really want my attention and um, that I want to be intentional about that to look out for the people that are looking for a family and looking for help. And with other single young people, you know, I think our house is pretty open for people to come over and and feel at home and feel loved and welcomed and I'm. I sought that out, and I think it's really important to do, if you want um, help and relationship and connection, to seek people out, because there's a lot of people that would would love more people at their table, you know.
6: Thank you, Janet. I was wondering, Kirsten, if you wanted to speak into that. I mean, we might think, oh, I don't know if I have the time for that, or I know I even think, well, you know, a young lady probably has so much to do, she doesn't want to hang out with me. Mm. From Mm. your perspective, how does it look when the church does this practice? I think
4: my husband and I have a different. Uh, we have another hat that we wear. We own a restaurant too, and I think that um, when I see the church, the, the church also exhibits itself through our through our businesses and our our lives and that sort of thing. And I think that where I see it practically and where I've really seen it is um, with the non Christians that are that come in and work for us at our restaurant. And I see that as. Um, I think sometimes we don't have necessarily a family that sits down and has dinner and can invite people over because we're serving other people dinner at dinner time, And yet we are able to be Christ and be family and be church and hear the tough things that are going through. We hear a lot of awful stuff at the restaurant sometimes from people that are struggling. And we can be family and be the church and we'll be the people that um, respond with those things with a godly answer. And so I know that's a little different, but... um, I think you can be family in a place that isn't even necessarily the four walls of your house, Um, sometimes more so than anywhere, so.
6: Thank you. Tim, this one's for you.
5: Specifically by name. Yes, yes, by name. You
6: mentioned the RFB, Real Family Bypass. Can you explain that more? How would I know if I'm guilty of that?
5: one little hint is if you have something tough going on in your life you run to Facebook or to your friends instead of the people that know you and love you right your mom your dad brothers and again I know it can be difficult because it's you know not every family is perfect but the people that have spent zero to 25 with you have a leg up and they love you more than you than your friends do right but it's really easy just to bypass the family because they're they're hard but they, at the end of the day, mom and dad, and I'll just make a pitch for mom and dads, you're welcome, right? I mean, if you have parents, I assume you all have parents, thank them, thank them. It's it's a job that you're not prepared for, and it's there's very few paybacks. Or, uh, you get grandkids here and there, but they have invested in you, in you and they know you, and kind of look past the, you know, they don't understand me. They changed your diaper. They understand you, okay? You just... It, seek them first and that's our first flinch that's when you know you have RFB when you go to Facebook it's like help me instead of talking to your family or a good you know a good family friend doesn't have to be a biological but somebody that has longevity with you
6: that's yeah, good that's really good thank you Tim how does the gospel help us overcome the family narratives of pain anger violence etc ricardo
1: take that <clears throat>
0: um, so it's kind of crazy because about April ten years ago is when I believe God first opened my heart. So it's been about a, about decades since I've been a Christian, and I remember being very excited, feeling the weight of sin, and then that Christ would be the for, the forgiver of that sin, like just just the simple gospel truth that I can have life forever with with God, and like believing it because I heard that before, but like believing it and going, it's real. And then I had this sense, I was living in an apartment. I'd moved away from Tempe because I wanted to get away from, like, a lot of the temptations of my life. And so I moved really far away to Owl-Tuki, uh, <laughs> or as we, as we called it, All-White-Tuki. Um, and, and I remember living in this apartment complex, and, my, and, um, and I just sensed the Lord saying, there's someone in your life who you haven't forgiven. And I'm thinking, I'm the most forgiving person in the world. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what this could be. And it was very clear to me. It was like, it's my dad. Like, Um, I've had, I had so much anger, right, and uh, so much anger, and I know, and not to get in super detail, but, you know, like, I think Tim's words are wise. I wouldn't go to my dad for anything. Um, We, we, I, we have a very, very bad, bad past, and I don't trust him. I love him, but I don't trust him. And, uh, and it keeps coming up every time I give them a little ounce of trust and, and so forth. So what happened was I'm like, I do have all this anger and I have all this bitterness and I do have this rage and I have this, man, this is robbed for me. How would this dude ever do this to me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so I called them and I thought, you know what? The Lord has given me the grace to forgive him. And I called them and, and I said, hey, man, I f- like here's all the things I felt like you, you've done in my life and I blamed you for so much of it, and I took my responsibility. I am who I am because of me. Like, you just provided the context, right? Somebody steps on my toe when I cuss them out, I can't say I cussed you out because you stepped on my toe. You provide the context for me to cuss you out, but I cussed you out. Um, that's on me. So in that, it was kind of like this anticlimactic moment. He was like, oh. I thought it was going to be like <laughs> the movie or something like that. But sure. the bitterness went away and I have normal conversations with him. I mean I, even though I don't like I said I don't trust him be- for, for different reasons he's got his own issues but I love him um, I think he's he's a good guy um, I think he's got things to work on but um, you know there's always these moments that will come up where I'm like dang it you did it again but I'm gonna forgive you you know f- two summers ago we were down in LA we we're right around the corner from his house and I said hey you know your grandkids are your grandkids are here you you, you should come see them He's like, "Was well, your mom there?" And I'm like, "Who cares if she's here? Your grandkids are here. My dad's only biological kid, so these are only biological grandkids." And because my mom was there, he didn't show. But I'm thinking, "Here we go." Like, and I said, "This is that bull st- uh, stuff." Oh. And um, and I said, "You know," then I forgave him again. And so here's how the gospel does it. Tim, this is where Tim is dead right on. You really, I see my dad as more broken and more normal than I've ever seen in my entire life. I know his story way more than I've ever understood his story. And I understand why he is the way that he is, and the only reason why I'm not like that is because of the grace of God. And I used to think I'm going to do whatever I can. My whole motivation was I'm not going to be like my dad. And the reality of it was I wasn't like my dad, but I was just like like him in different ways. But that that wasn't freeing. It was never free. Where well, now I'm freed in the gospel of Jesus Christ to know my dad can sin and sin and sin and let me down, and I will always forgive him. Like, I understand his plight. I, I really do. And I, 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 I don't resonate with him, but I, I, um, I don't wish his I, – I didn't have his life. He did, his, he did the best he could have with the lot that was given my dad. My dad has a 10th a grade education. My dad tried his best to take me fishing. My dad tried his best to be a dad with me. Um, life in itself and his inability to handle the things because he didn't have the grace of God let him to do the things that he, that he did and the only reason why I'm different is because um, because of God's grace and so I think when you can humanize the people around you as best as possible and understand sometimes there needs to be distance that's the reality of it because of safety and so forth but if you can humanize them um, then I think uh, you, you can be able to understand their situation and I think that happens when you understand God God humanized Himself in Christ, in order to bear the weight and the penalty of my own sin, not to give me lenses to look down upon anybody else, but give me hands as best I can to serve, to forgive, etc. Thank
6: you so much for that. Yeah, Ryan, go ahead.
2: I, I just that was very well said, but I just want to add just something to that because in our family, although I didn't grow up like Ricardo, uh, our family was broken, and and uh, one of the hardest part, as far as how the gospel has helped us overcome our, our family narrative is we've tried to explain to our children that what their grandpa and grandma and grandpa and grandma and grandpa and grandma and, grandma and, grandpa, and, grandma and grandpa did was not the right thing to do, and yet we still love them in the midst of that. that. that I think that has been probably one of the most difficult things that we, we've had try to teach our children because we've taught them, and, and my parents know it, uh, what you did was wrong. And we teach our children that what you did was wrong. And at the same time, our kids are told to love and respect their grandparents in the midst of that because... Jesus did for us what we didn't deserve. We've done all that stuff too. It just hasn't looked the same as what they did. Uh, That has caused the, that's where the gospel has had the, the, has rubbed us with sandpaper the most, I think. So.
0: Because this is so important. (laughs) Did you have something? I was going to say it because I would rather for you to say it, but um, it is so important that you deal with it that you acknowledge it and that you deal with it because you will pass it on. You will pass it on because more things are caught than taught, um, and that will be in you if you, don't, if you don't deal with it and you don't deal with those issues, um, it w- it will, you'll pass it on.
6: Did anyone else notice that Ricardo just looked at me specifically when he was talking about <laughs> all that? <laughs> Order taken, all that right. might have been
0: a word from, <laughs> from Absolutely, <laughs> a lot of work to do. Cool.
6: All right. Why do you think men are portrayed as doofuses so often in media and pop culture, i.e., Homer Simpson? Oh, we all want to speak on this one. Maybe no, Ryan. Why don't you speak on that?
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, well, first of all, to some degree, men are doofuses. Uh, you know, they, they. I. You know the. A lot of men make a lot of the same mistakes. Part of it is, uh, you know, um, anytime you get in culture where there, there is an, uh, an overemphasis of one side over the other, there's a tendency to swing the pendulum to the other side. We see this in race wars, we see it in men and women where it's been on this side and there's such a dominating presence from one side. That there's this tendency you want to swing it all the way back over uh, to the other side. So in some ways, from a non-Christian perspective, I get it why, why people would want to do that. It, it makes sense. Um, I think a lot of it comes just from the, just the simple misunderstanding of God. I think we forget a lot of the times, and especially I think right now uh, in a lot of areas... God is the one who invented marriage. It's it's an institution that he made up. And so he's the one who starts that. He's the one who has instituted the roles in that. And what has happened is people have taken that in their sinfulness and used it against Hmm. the other person. And therefore, we get these... "Quote unquote," you know, we get sex wars, race wars, where people are always swinging the pendulum back to one side or the other. Where, and I try to say it earlier, the relationship between a husband and wife is a mutually submissive relationship that's in reverence to Christ, that has roles in it. It has nothing to do with value or one of them is higher than the other, or one of them's dumb and the other one's really smart. It's that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being reverent toward Christ and fulfilling that role in a way that, that would show who he is. Uh, so why it's portrayed that way, I, obviously I don't know fully why it is, but I, th- I think that's what I think of when I think of that.
6: Janet or Kirsten, do you want to talk about that, especially as you raise girls? and maybe how men are portrayed and what you hope for as you raise your children, how that might influence your children growing up? Um,
4: I think it's, it's really hard um, because that is, not, that is not what I think for me that I want in a spouse or what I see God calling us to do, and I think that what we see in that too where you the men portrayed as doofuses. Then you see the women portrayed in a different light of what I want to raise my daughter in, into. And so I think when you talk about roles, both of them are skewed. One of them just looks a little more goofy than the other. And um, so I think I struggle with how watching significant TV, either of the roles, roles are the ones that I want to raise Nicolina um, in that. And I think Dave and I would say that too. And it's it's hard. Um, and so I think that I think it's a little bit where. Um, the cliche of if you want to understand counterfeit money, you study the real stuff so that the fake stuff stands out clearer. I think that what my role would be in training Nicolina and what David's role would be to, to just give her the gospel and give her what God's roles for men and women are so that when those stand out, they're so blatantly, obviously incorrect that it speaks to itself. So. That's really good.
7: I, I would like to add a little too. Um, I think it you know when you watch a commercial like it, it's frustrated me too some of those commercials and it's men being emasculated. And so I think in our family culture our our kids don't see that. You know, they their view of of a man would be nothing like that commercial. You know, Ryan is definitely the head of our home in a loving, kind, strong way, and so I don't think that would even resonate with our kids at all. I mean, they one of them gave him a birthday card today and said, "I want to marry a man just like you, Dad." You know, and so I think they have a should not know
2: v- me very well yet.
7: <laughs> <laughs> not you. <true. laughs> so I think <laughs> along what Kirsten's saying is that we're, you know, they're they're seeing you know they're seeing us and part of that too would be on my end to respect Ryan if I'm trying to dominate him or if I disrespect him in front of our kids our children see that and that that's where I've had to go back to them and say you know what the way I just treated your dad was wrong hmm. was it disrespectful and I asked him to forgive me and I asked you to forgive me and I asked God to forgive me and that is part of a cultural family dynamic that I think will help help them In that regard.
6: Thank you so much. What does the gospel perspective of family look like for adults who don't do not feel called to marry or have children? That's a really great question. Ricardo?
0: I'm both married and I have children. Um, I think the question that came up earlier of how we do family as the church and so forth, you're still a part of a family. You just might not have a husband, you might not have a wife, and you might have children, but going back to what Tim says, you have family, some form of a family. You have a cousin, you have an auntie, you have something. And I think that being able to cling on to your family narrative of what that particularly looks like. And so in terms of a gospel perspective, um, I think you look at the lens of Scripture from the very beginning to the end and that is you are to obey your father, you are to obey your mother um, and then you also have this thing called the church that you're supposed to be a part of and so it is better to give than to receive and so practically on one hand you think about what does it look like for me to serve my family with the time that I have. Now Paul's very specific about those who are single that you do have more time and I know for a lot of single people like they hear married people say that and, um, and it's hard to really Realize that, but you just you just do like there's like most of us at eight o'clock we're gonna go get our kids. Many of us we're gonna get our kids. We gotta get them down for a certain you know to go to bed um, so we can have that date night every night <laughs> yeah, that I had talked about. I don't know if, I didn't know if that was a metaphor for something else or whatever right? sometimes. <laughs> And not so, but there's, there's that sense of like, we you don't eat steak every night. <laughs> See, <laughs> that's not even the question. <laughs> um, but to be able to, to be able to use your time to serve other, other people and to be a part of their particular families. And so, um, as adults, I have a really, really good friend who is single and has no kids. And he voices his needs of us as a particular family. He voices what he particularly wants to be able to give, and I think it's the best way for us to be family with him without having his family um, here, um, which would tie into the fact that many of us don't have family uh, in proximity. So we're distant like, geographically, and so being able to be a family of the church, have people over for dinner, and do life together um, is important.
5: I have never been more single than I am now. I say that because I was married at 14, it feels like it was 14. And the kids are gone, and I have freedom now. It's My wife and I, we have odd schedules, and I have the ability to do things that I never could have done before. Um, But I I can tell you, the hardest person for me to meet with is a single person that really wants to get married. Right, because it's a great desire. But, and I have struggled what to say, but this is what I can say. Don't miss the time, right? it's like raising kids they're born and you say hey that's great when are they going to walk hey that's great when are they going to talk hey that's great when are they going to leave right you just you're always (laughs) right you're always looking for the next step so in singleness it's a it's a time in life so if you're always have your eyes way ahead of yourself you're going to miss this time and being single is it can be such a great time to serve to do to do what you want to do i just you don't want to miss opportunities, and being single is an opportunity, and it is, you are single, so don't fight it, but it's, it's difficult, so I don't think the church does a very good job of it, because we obviously celebrate marriage and family, as like, that's the end goal, it's, it's not, it, it's a good thing, but enjoy your singleness, because you, you will meet married people that will tell you, I wish I was single, <laughs> right, so don't miss the opportunity. And I
4: would, I would say the gospel perspective for those of us that are married and have children, that we don't push that on people who are single and don't have children, and to allow them the contentment of where they're at, and not to, to get your newly married friends and go, when are you going to have kids? Um, Dave and I didn't get married until we were 30, and we didn't have a kid until we were 40, and we love that, um, but we need to, as, as married people and people with children, not pressure and to encourage people where they're at.
6: Thank you for that reminder. That's really great, Kirsten. So next question. Is it wrong <laughs> to not want children? It's hard to not feel guilty as a Christian female who is blessed to be able to have children. <laughs> Kirsten, do you want to kind of hey, continue not, with what you were saying there? <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to read it one more time? I.
4: Um,
0: Every, like, everything's weighing on this.
4: This is, okay. Uh, <laughs> Um, I love my life. I have loved, I was single in my 20s. Like I said, I got married in my 30s, and we, had, we got Nicolina when we were 40. Um, I traveled around the world. I went to a great university. We have a couple national championships at my university. What's at The it University called? of Nebraska, <laughs> in what? Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, and I, Here's I in, <laughs> little town, Um, I think we lost to you guys one year Um, but I loved who I was I love who I am, I love to travel Um, when I got married to Dave we traveled to some of the places overseas that I went and I never felt like I missed out on anything, I felt like I could take Dave to some of the places we had gone um, that I had gone when I was single, Um, I feel like I have a better perspective on the world I'm a better mom I think being older, I hope I'm a better mom um but I would encourage you, you women, that to do what you want to do, go to school for what you want to do, um, get a job doing what you want to do, and and let God bring who it is when He's going to bring it. I dated guys that, my gosh, if I'd have gotten married to them, it would have been horrible. Um, and I think that He He has His timing right for you, and just enjoy it. Um, it is a it is so much fun all the way through when you are content and wherever God has you.
0: So okay. can I jump on the other side of that seesaw, only because I meet with a lot of people on that, is um, I wholeheartedly agree, and all I simply say is just be open to whatever God would do. Because I think part of it is you pursue the traveling, you pursue that, and that becomes as much of an idol as the, the single Christian female or male that's pursuing marriage is hardcore, and both are not sitting there saying, God, what would you have for me to do in this season? So i just be open for God to interrupt and do whatever um, he wants to do.
6: Thank you for that, Ricardo. At what point do you think you should seek out family relationships within the church? I have family that I'm pretty close with, but no mentorship. Maybe Ryan, do you want to speak into that?
2: Yeah. I, um, I, if you, I, I think at all times you should be seeking that out in the church. I think it's at different levels for different people. Uh, some people... Um, there's some families here where the entire family uh, goes to the church. And so you can, you can have a sense of family right in the midst of the church. Um, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be pursuing the relationships of the people and the, you know, your family that is the church. Um, as, far as, uh, as far as mentorship... I think sometimes that, that's, uh, if, I'm, if I'm interpreting this question right, that's, a, that's almost like a separate thing is what you're asking. I want a mentor, but not necessarily a family relationship. I, I think sometimes when you're talking about a mentor, what people are really wanting is somebody that they would meet with uh, maybe once a week, once a month, that would kind of tell them this is how you should live your life, per se. And then they go out and live that life with other people and, and interact with you know, the people that they're already doing it with. If it's possible, find somebody to mentor you within your family or your church that you live out a lot of your life with. I understand that sometimes you need to put yourself in a situation where you want to talk to somebody who's not in the middle of it, and that's that's just fine, but um, again, I would say always be seeking that out to to, to a greater degree. I don't know if somebody wanted, you want to add.
6: Thanks, Ryan, and, and the one thing I thought too is you might have something to offer somebody else, and you maybe don't necessarily always learn from somebody who's older than you if you're thinking of that in that way, or somebody who has something that you don't have yet, but maybe your mentorship actually looks like you getting involved in somebody else's life, inviting them into your family, and growing with that person and what you both have to offer. Mm -hmm. Next question. How do we make sense of when Jesus seems to marginalize the family and find family within the people of God? That's a great question. Tim?
5: sense when Jesus seems to marginalize the family. family with. Who asked that question? <laughs> uh, I don't, uh, when you say marginalize the family, uh, seriously, who, who asked that question? Let's just, can you jump out? <laughs> Jim did? What, what do you want to hear, Jim? What are you, what, what are you driving at? Jesus, you can't trust. Okay. Um, it's just, uh, I think there's, it's, a, it's sort of a dualism. There's two things, right? It's the family of God, and it's your real family, right? You get to heaven. You know, we won't be married, that kind of thing. I don't know what heaven's going to look like, but I just, um, maybe I'll just take it personally from what I said earlier. There can be an idolatry of family you know, and family can take different forms, because I feel like you guys are my family, I've done a ton of weddings, so I'm, I feel like I'm in people's family, my wife has done a lot of childbirth, so we feel like we're in your family, but then I have a family of the elders, we, I consider that my family, so I don't, I don't know if it's just defining the word family, um, it is ironic, and I don't know how to deal with that, that Jesus and Paul were single, you know, that, that's just really sort of Takes you in a whole different direction because we do a lot of family stuff, and yet these two guys were not family guys. So, Jim, would you like to add something to that, or is that?
6: How about Ricardo?
0: It's it's um, Jesus is not literally saying hate. Um, It looks like that, and I think he's trying to he's trying to compare what it looks like to love me should look like that. Like you should be so in love with Jesus, there's hate in your mother and hate in your father, and then there's a sense where Jesus is saying. This is my family, right? Um, who taught about that recently? Uh, Aaron taught about it. And, or Jim, Aaron or Jim? <laughs> and they, they talk about like that Jesus' family is like, what do you do when you're out of your mind? He's like, you know what? This is my family. And that's not mm-hmm. to say Jesus was dissing his family. There are realities that when it comes to you following Jesus, that there comes to be crossroads between particular people in your family that are not followers of Christ. That want you to marry somebody, and you're going, I'm not marrying that, som- that somebody. That want you to uh, raise your kids in a certain way, that you're saying, I'm not raising my kids in that particular certain way. Um, and so that is, uh, that, that's important in what Jesus is talking about. So it's not a marginalization of the family, it's a proper perspective of the family, because mind you, Jesus for 30 years didn't say anything, and he was with his family the whole time. Mind you, Jesus' first miracle was his, his, his uh, I almost said his wife, he's not married. Um, <laughs> Jesus' mom saying, hey, turn this water into wine, Right? He didn't have to do that, but he obeys his mom, and he turns water into the wine. Um, so I do think that Jesus upholds family and gives very, very strict reasons for you know, not to get divorced. Um, it reiterates what's in the law. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, which is to love your mother and love your father, um, and so forth. And so I do think that um, he's talking about what it looks like to follow. So I think time-wise, I
2: don't know, guys.
6: Yeah, it's 8 o'clock on yeah. the dot, so if you want to fit speak
2: into that Ryan? Oh it, well, yeah I mean, I'll just say on a personal level from experience this question is one that I feel and even what Jim said I've wrestled with for a long time. Um, the hate your father and mother thing because of the divorce of my family uh, R- Ricardo brought it up I kind of switched over to I found a reason to hate my family and I could separate from them and what I found is it built a wall between Janet and I and my ability to love my kids because I was always afraid that I wouldn't be following Jesus if I loved them too much. Mm-hmm. And so I withheld a lot of who I was from them for a number of years. And I remember, I can remember the moment that I realized, one, what, what Rick said. It's not hate in the sense that you hate them. It's a love less But I realized Jesus' love for me and my love for him actually empowered me to love my family and be vulnerable in who I was far more than I was capable on my own with my own abilities that would be set against him. So I was, ironically, through that scripture, I was freed to love my family more than I was capable to love them in my own abilities. And that helped me, it took me a long time to wrestle through that. Um, But yeah.
6: Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's a a great thing to end on. It's 8 o'clock actually, and we want to honor your time and make sure that um, all the families are able to get their kiddos. Um, So just a reminder that this is our last first Wednesday of the semester. We'll break for the summer and we'll return again in the fall. Thank you all for coming tonight. And I'd like Ryan to maybe close us in prayer.
2: Father, thank you that, that you instituted the family, that you, you, really, you breathe life into us. Lord, you gave us this life, and you gave us the great benefit of being a part of a natural family and the great privilege to be adopted into your family. And so, Lord, I pray that our understanding of that from your perspective would grow and that we would be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Would you give them a hand? Yeah, I just wanted to remind you that this month is the family month for our church, so be praying for families. If you are married, we want to meet with, pastors want to meet with you, do a little marriage checkup, so you can find a link to that online to sign up for that. And then also, we're going to have book clubs coming up throughout the summer, and a a few of them relate to family and these issues if you want to go deeper. Tim's leading one. Ryan's leading one. Have a good night, everyone.